Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. The phrase, stay woke, first emerged in America in the 1930s. The black folk singer-songwriter Huddy Ledbetter used it at the end of his 1938 song, Scottsboro Boy, which tells the story of a miscarriage of justice in the Deep South. He said, I advise everybody be a little careful when they go along through there. Best stay woke. Keep their eyes open. Since then, the term has been appropriated to connote wider forms of injustice beyond the racial. Sometimes it feels as if it applies to everything from LGBTQ plus rights to soft drinks and razors. Although the adjective didn't make it into the Oxford English Dictionary until 2017, the term had begun to gain wide currency with the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement. So you can imagine when I was presenting the Naked Reflection show reflecting on censorship, I was brought up short by this intervention from James Roberts. Recently, I had to cancel my subscription to Sky Sports. Why? Uh, Because, in my view, they're colluding with racism by this endless endorsement of Black Lives Matter, which is not an organization that, in my view, really cares much about black lives. It's very much a political organization with a certain agenda. What I see is bullying and intimidation. You're trapped into saying, if you don't agree with us, you don't care about black lives. Our subject this week, woke. With me to discuss woke culture are Professor Robert Toombs, fellow of St. John's College, Cambridge, and editor of History Reclaimed, a website set up by a group of anti-woke scholars concerned about the censorship of historical texts in universities. And Alia Ali, a PhD research student at the University of Cambridge, undertaking a PhD at FAMES, the Faculty of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies, with a particular interest in governance. And the political anthropologist and former research fellow here at the Wolf Institute, Dr. Tobias Muller, whose work is at the intersection of comparative politics, sociology and religious studies, who now divides his time between Leiden, Hamburg and Cambridge. That intervention from James Roberts felt pretty provocative and sets the scene for our discussion of woke. The OED definition seems unobjectionable. 
alert to racial prejudice and discrimination. What's all the fuss about, Robert? Well, if that's all it was, there wouldn't be a fuss. But I think the the problem is how woke is being used in an authoritarian way to try to impose a whole set of ideas and language and practices, in effect, often by intimidation, by cancellation, by censorship, and also by self-censorship, and by imposing certain uh, attitudes and certain activities in universities. That's what we object to. What do you feel about that? Is that a legitimate concern? There's a bit of silence here, which seems appropriate enough for a show that's worried about cancellation and self-censorship. Come on, come on, Tobias. I find it very interesting to think about why people feel under threat and and what it is that is claimed to be under threat and kind of what the history, I think, of, of that is as well. I personally don't see it as much as a threat um, to say that from the get-go. But I think what we see is that there is a, a contestation about how we claim what is legitimate contributions to a discourse. And I think also, how do we deal with people mentioning or criticizing certain ways we have been speaking about political issues, about history, and so on? We need to be alert of the racial prejudice that has been there against African-Americans and other minorities. And this was kind of a way of expressing that um, we should be aware of this. And I think that's also the connection that I see to kind of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is a, a movement that, among other things, tries to focus on around the issue of racial discrimination by the police and also violence against black people. So I think it's really interesting how there's been kind of a transformation into something that some people now feel that they need to defend themselves against. And I, I guess I'm not quite convinced yet why anyone would need to be defensive about it. So personally, I generally don't think that the term woke is completely negative because it's a tool, albeit political, that makes people aware of the struggles faced by disadvantaged communities. It's a way for people to to stand up for themselves and also have the um, language to be able to explain how they feel. I think the weaponization of the tool by the right and the bad press surrounding woke is is to an extent quite positive because it brings more discussion around the term woke and it brings more awareness of the struggles that people face. No one would deny being alert to uh, racial prejudice and discrimination, whether it's on ethnicity or nationality or religion. But it seems to be more than that that's raising the concern, isn't it, Robert? We're all friends here, so I think we can speak frankly. No one's listening. You're okay. What Alia said... It's fairly typical. You know, you say, oh, well, there's nothing to see here. There are no culture wars, really, or it's all invented by the right. But people have been dismissed from their jobs. People have had their lives threatened. Uh, People have had to have police guards. People have had to have bodyguards in universities to give lectures. It's not possible to say, well, this is just a way of people expressing their views. It's, It's, in fact, become a way of preventing people from expressing their views if those views do not fit a certain new orthodoxy of woke. I don't think one can simply say that this is not a, not a fact of life in, in universities. And although we ourselves, Tobias said, you know, I don't feel threatened. Well, I don't feel threatened either, but there are plenty of people who are threatened. I mean, I know someone who got death threats for an, a, an article that he wrote. Um, we all know now she's become quite a celebrity, Professor Kathleen Stock, who was forced out of her job at, uh, at Brighton at the University of Sussex because of her, in fact, very moderate opinions on gender. And uh, this has become now fairly common. Let me mention just another case, and I'll stop. 
I also know an American anthropologist who works with ancient skeletons, you know, thousands of year old skeletons, who's been attacked publicly by her university because she opposes these skeletons being handed back to people who claim to be the ancestral guardians, etc., etc., of long dead people. And she argues this is not scientific, which it clearly isn't. Now, these are not simply arguments that one has in a seminar room. These are attempts to silence and to intimidate people who don't accept certain views. Tobias, I mean, you come in there because, you know, one of your areas of expertise is gender, right? And the study of gender issues, this sort of censorship and intimidation is, is not acceptable. I think, first of all, we need to think about who has been traditionally excluded from the discourses of academia. Cambridge has been a place that has been excellent in excluding voices of women for hundreds of years, people of color, people from the global south. And then I think it's, it's important to really look at every single instance. I'm not familiar with every instance that has been mentioned. Actually, the question is, is it an academic opinion or is it, for instance, actually a political issue that people disagree with? Now, for instance, the restitution of um, objects that have been uh, taken from certain places, I think it's a specific political question that different people have different opinions about and that an institution might, might regulate and say, if you're against this policy that the university has decided on that we should restitute um, these objects and artifacts, then the university decides to take measures against that. I don't think that this is a reason for someone to lose their jobs. I think also actually forcing somebody out of their job, if that is the case, again, I don't know the exact details, I think there should be very, very good reasons. Quite frankly, people have been forced out of academic positions. And very often, these were people of color, these were women, these were people like Bertrand Russell, people who, who fight for social justice and have been forced out of universities uh, for decades. And so this is not a kind of a, a unique phenomenon that is only for people that now are against wokeism. I think on a different platform, if we think about woke or oh or wokeness um, on social media, people often find that if they don't stand up for a certain movement at the time, um, they feel pressure from the people that follow them or the people that they follow. But recently, I think people are now able to stand up against wokeness and say, well, actually, I don't know enough about something to be able to make a post about a situation. And I think um, there's a lot of pressure on like if you're an influencer or if you're just a normal poster, that you have to be able to be posting certain things and being aware of whatever's going on. Like during the Black Lives Matter movement, people were putting posts with um, complete black background and um, people were somehow cancelled because they didn't make that post. Robert, one of the things that struck me in, in reading about this and, and uh, familiarising myself more about woke culture is the anger that's out there. And listening to Tobias and Alia, two aspects of this question, really. Can you understand the anger, which sometimes leads to this sort of intimidation that you've identified? And are there any, in your own work, you know, as a, as a historian, examples in history where there's a, a similar process going on? Oh, yeah, sure. Anger is always present, and so is intimidation. It's not something that we should aim to emulate. Uh, I mean, I don't like particularly like the idea of safe spaces, because I think it's often hugely exaggerated. But, you know, universities should be a safe space for ideas. They should not be a place in which people are told to shut up. And I think Tobias's arguments, if I may say so, uh, are pretty extraordinary. You know, he says, well, if the universities decided on a certain policy, like giving back things, artifacts, then nobody should be allowed to oppose it. 
or if they are, they should be sanctioned in some way. That seems to me extraordinary. And the idea that this can be justified because of past injustices, which are often now very long past. I mean, as you know, I'm an old man now, but when I was a first-year undergraduate, I was taught by an Indian professor. In my fairly long experience in the university, it is only in very recent years that attempts have been made to, to stop people from expressing opinions. I mean, there's, there's always been often a very lively exchange of opinions. You know, we, we had Marxist professors, often extremely highly honoured, like Sir Joseph Needham, who was a great Chinese scholar. But he was a Marxist. There were lots of Marxist professors. There were also conservative professors, but this was thought to be normal. There's only in recent years that there's been an attempt to impose some sort of uniformity. And this is, I think, extremely dangerous and undesirable. I think one should be very, very careful like kicking someone out of their job academically, because I think academics should have that freedom to be controversial and to say things that go against the mainstream and go uh, against most other people. I think that is very, very important and certainly kind of to disagree with policies. One last point on that. I think um, also, Robert, you mentioned that some people denying that there's a culture war. I'm, I'm just interested in the use of that term. Um, I think the genealogy is that in 92, Pat Buchanan um, was mentioning uh, that there is a culture war trying to kind of politicize a lot of questions around abortion and around the moral issues um, that were there. And then the neoconservatives in the 2000s kind of put that idea further to kind of sideline socioeconomic issues and kind of emphasize questions of morality, of family, and so on. So we have the views of an eminent professor and we have the views of a, a youngish researcher. Now, Alia, as a student, I'm wondering to what extent the woke culture in this debate is impacting on you in terms of your research. Is this something that you're aware about in your study of early Islamic governance, for example? So this is something I'm quite conscious of as a student of early Islam, because we have all of this awareness of things that we should and shouldn't do in our modern society. But I have to make sure that I don't apply those same ideas when looking at the history of early Islam because they um, ruled under different circumstances and I can't put my own bias and my own opinions on the way Ali and Uthman chose their governors. I have to be very conscious about this. When I speak to people, they often ask me whether I think, and very simple questions, was Ali and Uthman, were they good or were they bad? It's not my role to ascertain whether these um, caliphs were good or bad or whether their legacies impacted people of today in a negative or a good way. My role is to extract data and to present research so that we can have a better understanding of early Islamic governance. And one of the reasons why I'm doing this research is because there's really, really big debate around um, whether Islamic sources are reliable and if we can take them at face value. And I think I don't think we can take any historical source at face value, but there is um, a really big debate around early Islamic sources. So by using prosopography and by gathering data in a clear way, it allows me to uh, see things without the narrative behind it and without interpreting things. And it's just, it's more straightforward. Also, because it's such a contentious part of history, I have to be so careful about giving my opinion, because if I offend anybody, I could be cancelled myself, which is also a concern. This is the issue. We're going to have a, a break in a moment. But I, I just want to ask, Alia, do you feel as a Muslim student studying early Muslim governance, you have more or less 
flexibility. Are you more under the spotlight or do you have a little bit more room for maneuver? I ask this as a Jewish scholar of Jewish Christian Muslim relations. And I know sometimes with a Jewish audience, I have to be much more sensitive <laughs> than, than I do with a, a Christian or Muslim audience. So I think that like yourself, I do have to be very conscious about how I present my research and where I stand in the debate. My family are Sunni Muslims. And because I'm dealing with Ali, who's also um, a revered figure in Sunnism, but also the most revered figure in Shiism, I have to be very careful with the way I present my data and my research and my opinions. But I think being a Muslim myself, um, I, I have more leeway in terms of understanding the the culture and the history and having grown up with the stories of the prophets and and the stories of the caliphs and these figures have been really big figures and then when I started studying it from a more historical lens I got more of an understanding just finding the right balance I am quite active on social media I put um, videos up of my own research online and I do get a lot of questions about my own Islam and I think because my face is are on these videos and I also present my research, I do get a lot of condemnation and judgment about the way I look and about the way I dress and people commenting on whether um, I am a good Muslim or not. And like all of these questions that come up and these judgments is something that I'm, I actually am aware of. But I think it's important because this idea of wokeness does also give people a space to say it, what they think and also hold people accountable to an extent. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Robert Toombs, Tobias Muller and Alia Ali, and we're discussing woke. Actually, woke is an adjective. So at the risk of sounding pedantic, perhaps I should say we're discussing woke culture or the great awakening, to borrow the rather inelegant phrase coined by the commentator Andrew Sullivan. A few years back, we would have probably called something very similar political correctness. Here's an extract from an essay by Rachel Delian from the Naked Scientists Archive. Academia throughout the world has been racing to set aside the power and purity of the scientific method and use of empirical evidence, and instead is adopting political correctness as the new method of hierarchy. While political correctness may have begun as a method to improve the language or clarify ideas and possibly offer more gentle methods of discussing subjects, it has of late turned into an entirely different creature where no longer are there plentiful examples of how to say things, rather it has grown to become a force of what not to say altogether. What happens when the scientific method butts heads with political correctness and who should be the winner? That answer depends on where you stand on the issues. However, more and more they are butting heads, and those who stand for the scientific method are not only losing out to those on the political correctness side, there are a growing number of cases where scientists are not just giving in to the political correctness, they are empowering it. Is political correctness, do you think, the sort of the precursor? Is it the same as woke? And I suppose part of that is, does it just lead us astray down a kind of blind alley? Tobias, just unpack that for us. Political correctness has, a, I think, a very similar trajectory than work. So in the beginning, I think it was used by parts of kind of leftist progressive broadly circles to self-describe. 
And there was a moment that it kind of switched and then it was mainly used as a pejorative and mainly connotated with disallowing certain views. And again, I think the um, right and the alt-right have been very instrumental in that shift. Um, just to give you an example, the most famous kind of far-right blog in Germany is called Politically Incorrect. So consciously claiming this idea that you're saying what you're not allowed to say openly, and then all sorts of Islamophobic, racist, anti-Semitic um, um, tropes and so on are getting rehashed there. I do see a parallel in how these uh, terminologies and the contestations around them. Robert, I wonder whether what we're hearing is actually as much a generational divide as an ideological divide? Or is this discussion a sort of elite kind of Western discussion and irrelevant to the wider world? I wonder what you'd say to that. I think it's particularly virulent, if that's the word, in English-speaking countries. I mean, it's hugely Americanized. I mean, talking about woke. I mean, I think political correctness is a little different in that it seemed to me it was mainly about manners, behavior. It wasn't such a political issue, except in a very general sense, whereas this is a very clearly political issue focused on race. And obviously, the template is America. America has unique problems, at least in the English-speaking world, about race. And we've kind of adopted that because the much of our intellectual class, perhaps particularly the younger members, are, uh, are highly influenced by America. Is, is there a generational difference? Clearly there is. I mean, opinion polls show that quite clearly. Why that is, is not so obvious. You know, there are lots of potentially obvious explanations, like the much greater number of people who attend university now than a generation or two ago. The growth of what's um, rather nicely called the professional managerial class, which seems to have adopted woke attitudes as a kind of way of justifying its existence. You know, if you wanted to take a kind of quasi-Marxist approach to this, you'd be looking at the class interests of this new generation of university-educated people who are looking for careers. Um, and certainly within academia, there is a one reason there's a very clear generational difference is because some people are much more secure in their positions than others. So, um, you know, I've I've often come across people who say, well, we we'd like to write you know, for your website or whatever. I remember one young academic in a northern English university saying, I'd like to write for your website, but I have, a, I have a wife and children to think about. I can't take the risk. And we know that it's not just people losing their jobs. It's questions of research grants, promotion, tenure and all that. There are lots of reasons why there is a generational difference, but there clearly is. Tobias will help us here. And Robert also, what's the continental angle? What's the debate going on in, in Germany, for example, about these sorts of issues? And France also, because occasionally they appear in the, the British press, because it's a pretty intense debate here. I wouldn't want to think that just because we're a slightly different environment than the States, we're, we're not polarised. I think we're pretty polarised on these sorts of issues. What's happening in Germany and what's happening in France? I think the situation in Germany is interestingly different because we don't have a colonial past in the same way that the UK K has, and we don't have the legacy of slavery in the same way that the US have. Obviously, I think for the Germans, the Holocaust is kind of the main point of reference for a lot of those debates. So still, I think anti-Semitism um, and connected with, of course, racism is the background against which a lot of those debates unfold. But also because of the demographics that have been excluded, obviously kind of the German colonial past, for instance, is one thing that there is a debate now on because we hardly have reckoned with that at all because the Holocaust looming so importantly for good reasons, of course. But now um, slowly we realize that in the Charité, actually, we have loads of old skulls from Herrera and Nama chieftains 
where the Germans performed their first genocide that now are being given back. And there's a, a slow reckoning of that actually being a genocide and so on by the government as has now been announced. I think the question on where you stand also on Israel and antisemitism, that very much forms the debate here, as of course it does in, in the US as well. Robert. I think France in some ways had this debate some years ago and got it over fairly quickly. It was about the French Empire. Uh, Macron, I think, said it was a crime against humanity. My impression is that in France, it, it's seen more as an intellectual issue about uh, postmodernism and about rationality versus emotion and about, you know, freedom of speech in a fairly abstract way. But the French have, have got other problems which they've created for themselves, I think, often, which is which is much more about a present-day uh, Muslim culture within France. For years and years, the, the, the issue about hijab was a big, big issue and still is to some extent. So I think, you know, that in some ways that's obscured other issues. And I think it's, as I say, so far it's been really rather a, an intellectual debate rather than a political one. If I briefly may come in on, on France, there is an interesting debate about what they call Islamo-Gauchisme, which is a term kind of leftist Islamism kind of, or Islam leftism, a term that a minister actually used and launched an inquiry against a alleged collusion between Muslim intellectuals and political forces and the left. People kind of being investigated that they kind of seek to undermine the French academic and intellectual system. So I think it is a slightly different debate, as, as Robert alluded to, but I think it is still there. And it is a very, very heated and political debate about the position of academics that also links to the question of colonialism, where post-colonial scholars have been under huge fire from the government and parts of the, of the media for their alleged almost conspiratorial uh, collusion with Muslims, which then rings very kind of uncomfortable for someone like in Germany, this mirage of Muslims taking over the country and so on, which I think is a, a, a highly problematic image. But you may remember, you may have read it, Welbeck's novel La Soumission, which was about an Islamic takeover of France through uh, the election of a, a Muslim president and so on. Also, there has been in the past, I'm not sure about now, uh, the, the extreme right in France was often very pro-Arab and pro-Muslim because of their anti-Semitism. So it was, it was a rather confused picture of the sort that we don't really have. Before we um, draw to a close, I want to explore the issue of rewriting history. Uh, we have two historians here amongst us and its relevance to our discussion on, on woke culture. I mean, surely, Alia, all accounts of history are rewritten. Yeah, as a historian, I am always conscious of presenting my own version of history based on my experiences, but then looking at the sources as well. It's a very challenging task to present history accurately because it will always be from some kind of perspective. I'm a, a young black Muslim writing about the history of Islam and the way I interpret the sources may be completely different from a, a male Arab Muslim because of his own experiences. So um, I'm always quite conscious about my bias, which is why I try to use a wide range of sources and um, read as much secondary literature as I can so that I do not present history in my own way. Robert, if you don't mind me calling you an elder statesman of the discipline of history, what advice would you have? I mean, is it possible to do more than just to be aware of one's own bias? Well, first of all, could I say I think Alia is the ideal person to talk about this because it's always been people writing 
the history of religion who have been in the firing line more than any others. You know, in the 19th century, it was often Christian scholars who were attempting to apply the sort of historical methods that Elia outlined who got into trouble. And I have a Sikh friend who did the same with, with Sikh uh, scriptures and who also got into trouble. In a sense, you have the problem of a rational approach to the evidence of the past running up against an orthodoxy. And and I think there's all historical writing does that to some extent, though usually not to the same extent that Halia's tends to do. We're always rewriting history, that's true. But as Alia said, you're applying certain methods which have been used in history since it became an, an intellectual subject. And uh, you can't just rewrite history in the way you would like it to be. If you're honest, you have to rewrite it in the way that your evidence and your rationality leads. And often you come up with things that you don't expect. You often come up with things that you prefer not to be there. And in that case, you have to be willing to revise your own assumptions. And that can be painful. But I think what you can't do is simply to say, this is the model that I'm imposing on the past. And anybody who disagrees with me is, you know, as the Marxists would have said, is suffering from false consciousness or is expressing a bourgeois point of view. Any more than nowadays, you can say this is just someone who's suffering from white fragility or something. We have to be willing to follow evidence and follow reason. I would say that's the problem with woke interventions in in academic life. They want to impose a certain view. I'm suffering from the sadness that we have to bring this podcast to a close, but thankfully we haven't had to cancel anyone. Thanks to my guests, Robert Toombs, Tobias Muller and Alia Ali. And thank you to our dear listeners for joining us on Naked Reflections. If you enjoy the show, you might also want to browse our archives of podcasts that includes a dialogue about censorship, gender, racism, and much, much more. And feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more guests.